rolling with the rhythm. I forgot all the lyrics to the rest of that Linkin Park song. Is that Linkin Park or is that Four I think, Minor? I think, I think that's High Voltage. I do. I do think. Yeah, that's was that from Meteora? Like, it's it's like it's a hybrid theory like bonus track. That's like right. it's on a deluxe edition sort of situation. I listened to the entirety of of Hybrid Theory and Meteora while I was cleaning the house for my mom to come for Thanksgiving. Nice. So I have reinvigorated my love of Thinking Park. I do love Hybrid Theory. I'm not even going to lie. It's great. It's awesome. Since, you know, I just love takes it. Takes me back. It really it is like it is one of the most nostalgic albums for me. Yeah. And I I don't know. I think it was like the first it wasn't the first album I ever listened to, but it was, I think, the first album that I ever went out and bought for myself. Oh, that's cool. And, like, used my allowance money on or something like that. So, that was pretty cool. All right, so it has been a few weeks, but we are looping back around to our series, going over Robert Cialdini's influence, the psychology of persuasion. The last time we did this, which was episode 186, we talked about reciprocation and also the anchoring effect which was kind of a bonus. Uh, We don't have a bonus analysis for you guys today, but we do have one big topic, and that is the topic of the book's third chapter, which is consistency and commitment. So we're going to talk about how people subconsciously commit to things, and when they do, it changes their self-image and actually can influence their behavior afterwards. So this is like the second really big um, compliance tactic, yeah. they call it. Yeah. Yeah, it's real sneaky. And when I was doing my little bit of research for this, I know this was mainly your episode to research, but I got to thinking, is pre-ordering games a really good example of this? Uh, I think that, uh, I don't know. I pre-order a lot of games because I see myself as somebody who will play them, and yet there are 12 games on my shelf, as I counted the other day, that I have not started so you see yourself as a gamer, yes. and that drives you to pre-order well, games. Then it, well, then I'm like, well, I can't not buy the new Nintendo games, and that's true, in all fairness. But I haven't played them all yet, so arguably it's not true, in all fairness, and I just see myself as a Nintendo fanboy and can't uh, okay. help myself. Well, I've been thinking about the Nintendo Switch in particular when it comes to like this consistency and commitment to a public self-image thing, because... Since I got the Switch, I have been blathering on about how I think the Switch is like the best console ever made. And I do, I do, I do think that. Switch. I honestly do think that. And if people release games that I've already played on other consoles on the Switch, I'm likely to buy them. Oh, yeah. Like, I think I just read the other day that all the Mega Man X games are going to be released on what? the Switch. And I'm really excited oh, about the that. Switch is so good. And I'm super excited about the prospect of playing Mega Man X5 with that amazing soundtrack on the switch it's gonna be great and they're making Mega Man 11 and all these games are coming out and it's like christmas every day for me but before the switch came out i mean i played a decent amount of video games but not that many video games and i'm definitely not the kind of person who goes out and buys every new game that comes out for the ps4 i don't have an xbox one i don't buy every new pc game but for some reason because i've been so hyped up about the switch I feel like I need to buy every Switch game that comes out. You do. <laughs> oh, okay. That's a fact. So it isn't it isn't commitment, it isn't consistency, it isn't any sort of psychological. When I get thing in the here. line at GameStop, Reggie is behind me watching. <laughs> He's making sure you buy Nintendo games. So what's what are you pre ordering over there? 
Oh, that's cool. <laughs> hey, you know, there's this other game coming out. It sounds pretty cool. I don't know about you. Mm-hmm. And then I say yes. Well, so I was thinking about this because I know that I am not typically the kind of person to play a game like, say, Xenoblade 2. Good game, it's, probably. Uh, like 100 plus That's another hour. one I haven't started yet. Yeah. Well, you did buy it, right? Oh, I did buy it. I Boom. cannot have it. Consistency. Duh. Um, and I bought it, and I'm not the kind of person who typically plays a big, long JRPG, especially one that has combat that isn't exactly the most action-oriented. Is, I mean, it, I, is it turn-based? Playing, It's not turn-based. So playing through the game, I think I've played about 10 hours at this point. The combat is pretty involved once you learn all the systems, but when you start the game, it seems pretty passive. It's a lot like Final Fantasy XII's. Where it uh, is kind of happens in real time. I think I kind of know. But I think I know what you're talking about. But I didn't play that. It's one. not turn based. But it's not like it's not like Kingdom Hearts where you're actually hitting the swing sword button and jumping around oh, yeah. and things like that. Yeah. It's okay. kind of in between. So really not my kind of game. But because it's on the Switch, I almost felt like I needed to go get it because it's a well, new cool new Switch you, game. Because you love the Switch, therefore, if you mm-hmm. love the Switch, you must love Switch games. Yeah. Duh. So it's a good example of that whole. I've made kind of a public commitment. I've sort of established this self-image in my head of somebody who really likes the Switch. So it compels me to go give more of my attention and more consideration to games that I would otherwise probably not consider at all. Yeah. Well, you have to do things that emphasize that you like the Switch. Because, like, and this is pointed out in the book, and I like this point, and it's that when we want to judge a person and what they care about, we look to what they do. What, What are their actions? That's how we know what they care about. But it's also how we judge ourselves. Mm-hmm. So we kind of just say, well, I just bought this game, so I must love the Switch and the games on the thing. But since I love the Switch and the games on the thing, I got to get this new game. And then yeah. as soon as you buy it, you think, well, if I keep buying all these Switch games, there must be a reason. I must love it. So you can you continuously justify your actions, which justify your identity, and then cycle around forever. And mm. you're very consistent. And at some point, it becomes really hard to even consider the idea that at one point you were wrong. Now, yeah. in, in the case of Switch games, you weren't wrong. But in some other cases, I can see that. In some other cases, you could be wrong and you'd never know mm-hmm. because you're so ingrained into that identity, which is such a hard thing to challenge. Yeah. And I think we, we brought up this point in the last episode about reciprocity how this isn't necessarily a bad thing. Just as reciprocity was very integral to the development of societies, because if you can't under if you can't expect that what you give will be repaid in kind naturally, then nobody ever trusts anybody. And I yeah. think this whole idea of commitment is actually very useful as well, because you start to build a, a consistent self-identity. And one thing I did remember reading about in this book is that the consistent self-identity actually helps you to not have to make so many pedantic, tiny little decisions. Oh, that yeah. pot is just leaking everywhere. <laughs> it is. It is. That's. We're gonna do a new lesson on how water sticks to stuff. Well, well there's um. It's what, sticky. What's it called? I don't know the real name. That's why I said sticky. I forgot the name. <sighs> it's right on the tip of my tongue. Why can't I think of it? It's like surface tension. Is that what it is? That's yeah. I think it's surface you know, tension. It's real tense. It's. It's what makes it really hard to pour water out of yeah. a cup that doesn't yep. have a tip. I couldn't, couldn't uh, do anything spout. about it. Well, I don't think it was what was happening here. I'm pretty sure that for some reason water is actually leaking out of oh, yeah? this little crack at the top. Well, that's not good. So I need to figure Just out. put Silly Putty on top. What I need to do is I need to fly back <laughs> to Tokyo, find the person who sold me this teapot. I'm pretty sure I bought it in the shopping mall oh. 
next to Asakusa Station. I did not I'm going to find them, and I'm going to be like, give me my yen back. Didn't know that. I'm going to spend 1000 to $1,200 to get there just to get my $70 back in yen. That's fine. All right, so um, <laughs> it's the principle of the matter. Oh, saving saving time and not having to make decisions. Well, yeah, if we don't have if we don't have shortcuts, we cannot live. There are too many things for us to think about. Exactly. I might walk into this room and say, "What should I do with that lamp? What should I do with that router thing? What should I yeah. do with that basket? What should I do?" If I don't have an automatic response that like tells me what to care about and what not to care about, yeah. But basically, like a robot with no that was only programmed to observe stuff and then do something with it would come in here and be overwhelmed by the infinite possibilities. You need to have yeah, a focus. Exactly. And, and so, identifying in a way that allows you to make shortcuts is good for you. Mm-hmm. I identify as a person who does not kick puppies. That means every time I see a puppy, I don't even have to think about it. I just don't kick them. That's pretty useful. I just don't kick them. I don't even go. Should I kick that one? It kind of deserves it. No, I just don't. Sure. Say I haven't built that identity yet. So every time I see a puppy, <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, do you're I, just locked in decision. Do I kick what that should I puppy do with that not? puppy? I'm not sure. I think I'm gonna not kick it. You need a shortcut. But then the next puppy I see, I'm, it's right back to the same dilemma. Yeah. I, what do I do? Yeah. Do I kick this puppy or not? But like without without <laughs> shortcuts, we could we are too many possible decisions we could make on a mm-hmm. given day. And being unpredictable is not great for society. Because if Jimmy the blacksmith over here is, is really reliable on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but I come to him to make a really dope sword on Friday and I get a balloon animal, I'm going to be mad because that's not what I expected him to do. <laughs> that's very true. Actually, kind of on that note, um, I'm currently listening to Anthony Bourdain's book, Kitchen Confidential, right now. Oh, okay. Really good book, actually. And I would recommend the audiobook for this one because it's narrated by him and okay. he's just he has that really good narrator voice. Not he, his voice isn't like an audiobook narrator's. It's just him speaking, and because he's on TV and he's pretty good at speaking, okay. it just it's fun to listen to. But he was talking about when it comes to line cooks or basically anybody who's on his team when he's being a chef, he would rather have somebody who is almost like just a mercenary, somebody who just is good at cooking, but it's not their calling. They just do it because it pays well. And it's their craft because people coming to the restaurant don't want somebody with these artistic, high lofty mm. ideals thinking, I'm going to experiment with the recipe. I'm going to throw some mint in there tonight because I think that it would be really uh, improving. <laughs> you want to improve on this recipe a lot. They're just like, no, these people coming to this restaurant expect a certain experience. A lot of them have had this recipe before. They want it again. So execute my recipe the way that I told you to do it. That's yeah. what they want. So it's that makes sense. Consistency, consistency is very valuable. It's why Starbucks is so successful because you know if I'm in Portland, Oregon or I'm here in Denver or I'm in Maryland somewhere, the latte I get at Starbucks is going to taste the same. Yeah. Which is pretty pretty um, astounding to be honest to have that level of consistency across all the stores they have. But it's useful. And in psychology this whole idea of a mental shortcut to cut down on the need to make decisions is called a heuristic. And it is pretty useful, but it can be exploited. So I think that's what we want to show in in this episode is how people exploit it or how it can actually hurt people. Yeah. And we have some examples from the book that we're going to go through. But I actually wanted to talk about something that wasn't in the book. Uh, and it's the whole concept of financial bubbles. Okay. So right now, um, if people are listening to this close to when it came out, the big topic in the news right now is Bitcoin. 
because the price of Bitcoin has been going up insanely and it's really weird to hear like your mom talking about it. I'm putting it all in. Just random people talking about it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now, I have studied the characteristics of financial bubbles. And in fact, we did a whole episode on it on Listen Money Matters. I think it's not out yet, It's but it may be out within the next week or two. Um, and I think that Bitcoin exhibits a lot of the characteristics of a financial bubble, which if you don't know, a financial bubble is basically when an asset uh, increases in price, not because it has value, but because people think that they can sell it for a greater price later. Everybody's getting excited because they think everybody's going to keep getting excited. Exactly. At some point, you're the last person to get excited. Right, yeah. So most people, I honestly believe 99% of the people who are buying Bitcoin right now are not buying it because they are interested in the concept of cryptocurrency. They're not interested in the applications in the real world. They're interested in the fact that they think more people are going to buy it after them, the price will go up, and then they can sell what they have at a profit. Yeah. Um, This is what they call the greater fool theory where people are persuaded to buy something not because they think it has some sort of inherent value that they can use, but because a greater fool than them will come along and buy it at a higher price later, which means they can sell it. Okay. So when people get into these positions, one of the things that Influence talks about is once people have made a commitment, they are now incentivized to accept anything that strengthens the argument for that commitment or for that position and uh, de-emphasize or ignore anything that points to the opposite answer. And I see a lot of this in all the examples of financial bubbles you can look into. So like the dot-com bubble of the 2000s, uh, the housing market crash of 2008, or right now. I mean, who knows? I could be proven wrong. Maybe Bitcoin isn't a huge bubble. Maybe it's just going to go to the moon and everyone's going to get their Lambos. But I think it is exhibiting bubble-like characteristics. But if you go onto the Bitcoin subreddit, you see people just defending their positions that it is this new revolutionary thing, it's this new paradigm, it's going to replace the dollar. And when people bring up very legitimate and real points that, that lend credence to the idea that it is a bubble, they tend to ignore that information, a lot of them. Or they tend to be very visceral in their reaction to it. And I think if they didn't hold a position in it, they would be a little bit more rational when looking at these arguments. But yeah. because they've made this commitment, especially because they have some skin in the game, they want to ignore it. Yeah. And I think I just see a lot of delusion in there. Yeah, it's a, that's an unfortunate – consistency is a very unfortunate thing, especially like today with mm-hmm. everything. Everybody's so divided and so like almost radicalized on any opinion you have. Every single opinion you have is like a life or death. I hate you if you don't agree with me. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite song on this album? You're not my friend anymore. And you just block them on Facebook. Like Mm -hmm. we're all so entrenched with our consistent opinions that it's impossible to talk us down from it easily. Well, with that thing, I think the internet also helps to contribute to the very polarized sides that just want to shut each other out. Yeah. There's a really good article on Mark Manson's website about this. I, I think it's called like the age of outrage or something like that. Yeah, I'm, and we'll, we'll put it in it. the show notes. But that, I mean, that's kind of a different idea here. I don't know if that is entirely the public commitment and consistency uh, more than it is the fact that we've built these information silos through social media and through these very curated interest-based news feeds that it's oh, just yeah. like an echo yeah. chamber, right? It's We've created stuff that is really, 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 really harmful in combination with consistency because yeah. – 
Well, well, that's no good. I think consistency yeah. is is a factor here. But the main thing with this is, you know, 20 years ago when people didn't use the internet that much, you had your neighbor who may disagree with you on certain things. Maybe they have a different political opinion than you. Maybe they voted for a different candidate than you did. But you know that person. So, okay, Jim thinks that, uh, you know, this candidate was better than the one that I like. I don't agree with that. But Jim's still a good guy. I go to his barbecues every other week. We talk sometimes. We have our disagreements. Whereas now, every time I go on Twitter and I see somebody tweet anything in like the least amount political, anybody who's on the other side is basically thinking, you're Satan. Yeah. I'm going to murder you. I'm going to come to your house tonight and I'm going to murder you. Oh, you like Twizzlers instead of Red Vines? Dead. You're dead. Yep. Dead. Exactly. And it's just, they, they just want to shut that person out immediately. They almost feel like that person should have no ability to make their opinion heard. They want to delete them from their feed. All these things. Well, you're threatening their identity. When you show them something that they don't like, you're saying you might be wrong. And nobody wants to feel that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, that that's a good segue into one of the points from the book. Um, so there's a lot of different examples and scientific studies that no, it's, he it's reports a great on chapter. in this One of the ones I found most interesting was um, there was a case where these people who were basically selling a course on transcendental meditation came to this campus. And I don't know what the details of transcendental meditation are. I know that didn't pay. I know Arnold Schwarzenegger tried it back in the 70s, I think. I don't even know that. Um, But in the book, they were saying that these people were touting the benefits ranging from better mental clarity to eventually being able to levitate and go through walls. If you kept paying for enough of the course. Well, yeah, you got to eat your thetans up so you can meet uh, Xanadu. I don't remember that. Sounds like a Final (laughs) Fantasy boss. (laughs) I mean, the the origin of Scientology does kind of sound like a Final Fantasy story, to be honest. I need to compare it to all the Final Fantasies. But I digress. (laughs) So, um, was was it the author that went to the study or was it a professor the, that he the was author went on. with his like logician friend. That's right. He went with a, a friend who was like a logician and a statistician, and they sat quietly through the presentation. But afterwards, during the Q and A session, the logician friend raised his hand, and then in a couple of minutes, just demolished the presentation. Yeah, point by point, said these are inconsistent. You're literally touting contradictory benefits here. All these different things. To the point where the people up on stage had to concede, like, yes, we, you, you bring up a good point. We're going to have to study this further. Yeah, and he said they're all uncomfortable, like, oh, oh no. Exactly. We've been had. Yep. So you'd think that given this utter demolition of their presentation, that everyone there would leave in disgust at the time that had been wasted. But the opposite happened. Tons of people came up and were basically fry from Futurama, take my money, even though they had been shown that this doesn't work. There are a lot of arguments against it that make a whole lot of sense. So the author and the professor asked some of these people afterwards, why did you buy it even after hearing these arguments against it? And a funny thing happens. It's it's funny because they understand that there's an argument against it, so they want to commit to buying it before it's like truly proven wrong. Because yeah. there's like there's like this little shred of hope. So they're almost like they're almost hoping that that little shred of hope is actually true. You know, the 1% chance there's still a chance kind of thing. Yeah. And we'll just happen to 
um, overcome all of the arguments against it. See. I think this is a very similar thing to what's happening in Bitcoin right now. There's all this evidence that there's probably financial manipulation. There's probably a bunch of big banks that are manipulating the price so they can pump it and dump it. This has happened so many times in the past. You can look at you know a historical record to see, and everyone's like, yeah, yeah, I could see that. I totally understand your arguments. But what if this is the one time where it overcomes all the odds or it really is a new paradigm? They want to believe. Yeah. And then they just keep buying. Yeah. And I got the I got the quote here that I thought was really good because he was he was not going to put money down originally. One of the people that was like that. That's right. Yeah. Him because it wasn't that they didn't understand the arguments. They were like, oh, yeah, I see. That makes a lot of sense. But he was like. Well, I wasn't going to put down any money tonight because I'm really quite broke. I was going to wait until the next meeting. But when your buddy started talking, I knew I better give him my money now or I'd go home and start thinking about what he said and never sign up. Mm-hmm. Like literally in the face of, oh, I might be right later when I think about it really hard. I'm just – that's scary. I don't want to think about it. This was the answer. Mm-hmm. If I give in to logic, logic takes my answer away and makes me scared again. Logic means I have to start from square one and I don't want to start from square one. So logic is the enemy. Wall off. Get rid of it. Block yeah. all your friends on Facebook who say you can't fly mm-hmm. and then keep paying money to something even though deep down you know it's not true. Yeah. Um, did this book talk about the cult? Uh, which cult? The one that uh, the one that was super convinced that the earth was going to end and that there were these people that were communicating to this one lady from Titan, the moon of Saturn, saying that spacemen were going to come at midnight this certain night to pick them up. I'm trying to remember if this was I don't in... Th- I haven't read it yet. It's not, it's not so far. Was it in this book or was it in another book that I was reading? It was really interesting, though, because they... They basically didn't want to talk to the news. They were really, um, like, closed off. They didn't want to let new people in until the spacemen failed to show up and instead of going home in shame they actually doubled down on their beliefs it's like that uh that guy in parks and rec who's just like i re-examined the texts and i realized i made some errors the world's not ending today it's actually ending next year precisely march 9th at 3 p.m or something like that um because they didn't want to destroy that image of themselves they had already isolated themselves socially they had alienated their family members and everything they'd quit their jobs and now that they've been shown to be wrong now they double down and at this point now they start going to the media they start trying to seek attention because it's the identity they're convincing themselves yeah not anyone else the point is they're just no i still believe that's what otherwise i wouldn't go on the news and talk about it that would make me look dumb yeah there's like this psychological need to remain consistent with the self-image you've built of yourself yeah which um Reminds or that that just makes me remember about the uh, presidential election. I think it was two thousand four, where they always they called Talking John about, Kerry. A oh yeah, I actually, I wrote, I wrote that down as something that was worth mentioning. Is that politicians get made fun of when they yeah. change their opinion, which is or dumb. Made fun you, of or vilified. Like oh, oh you yeah, voted yeah, this way right. twenty you, years ago. Right. More why'd, than made fun of. Why did you vote, vote this way? And I mean, it makes perfect sense if you're given new information, then. You should. Shouldn't we congratulate them? As long as we think they actually changed their mind and not just pandering, but like if they legitimately changed their mind, isn't that a good thing? Yeah. And I don't want to say like always changing your mind is always a good thing because maybe you had a very um, logical and very principled stance on an issue at one point and then you were paid off by a company to vote the other way. Yeah. Well, now you're corrupt. But 
say you believed one thing because you read a study or because you just thought you knew how the world was. You voted one way because the vote was then. But then later on, either a new study comes out or you do some extra reading on it or, you know, anything happens where you realize there's a legitimate reason to change your position. Well, now you're going to vote the other way. If you vote the way that you voted the first time, even though they, you believe something different, now you're just going against your own beliefs. Yeah, it's kind of like we tell people, even when they're wrong about something, yeah, hey, you know what? At least you stuck to your guns. Yes. Maybe they shouldn't have all the time. Exactly. Sometimes, sometimes that's okay. If you're sticking for values that you really believe in that are like, but you don't secretly think they're wrong, mm-hmm. sure. But in a lot of cases, that's not good advice. Stick to your guns if they make sense. Exactly. Not if you're denying it yourself because you're like, well, that's going to get really embarrassing when I tell them I may have made a minor mistake like a human. Yeah. Yeah. There was an article I read a while ago, a few years ago, actually, on less wrong about this concept they called belief as a tire. Um, Oh. As like, not not like a car tire. A-T-T-I-R. I was like. Like clothing, like a tire. I got it. So this is when you don't legitimately believe in something anymore. You know, say you believe in the flying spaghetti monster with all your heart. And then eventually you start coming across some evidence that leads you to believe the probability of the flying spaghetti monster existing is lower than you thought before. But you're in a community of people who all believe in the flying spaghetti monster. And these are your friends, possibly your family, people who you look up to, people who are leaders in your community. You want to look good to them. You want to maintain good standing. So you convince yourself to continue to believe in this thing and you kind of put all these reservations you have, all this new evidence that you have acquired, you shove it into the basement. Yeah. You just put it into storage and you, you don't look at it because yeah, you, you don't want to look at fingers it. in your ears and la 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 la. Exactly. I don't know what that thought was. Go so away. You, you may not believe it anymore, but you continue to believe in it to some degree as a tire, as your self image that you want to remain consistent with. And uh, one of the most interesting and insidious examples of someone exploiting this that the book talks about was during the Korean War, mm. the way that the, shiny, the Chinese communists would treat the POWs uh, from the U.S. military. So the North Korean military, when they'd get a POW, it was real bad. You know, they, all sorts of violence and everything you think of when you think of like a horrible POW camp. But the Chinese wouldn't do this. So the Chinese basically wanted the Americans to help with their propaganda efforts, to spread the message that communism is actually fine. You yeah. know, the U.S. isn't perfect. But they knew that these American POWs who are trained to just give rank, serial number, name, that's it, are not going to immediately say, yeah, communism is great and the U.S. sucks immediately. Like that's not going to happen. Their self-identity is I'm an American. Well, not only that, their self-identity is of a soldier who is going to withstand things. If you hit them, they might want to withstand it even more than before because they're like, oh, yeah, well, I'm not the kind of person who backs down to physical pain. You can't stop me for quite a while until you do hit a breaking point. But, Mm -hmm. like, it'll make them more resilient for a little bit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, eventually, like, you can only withstand so much. Naturally, there is a breaking point. Which is why throughout history, like, torture has been used. But they didn't do that. Instead, they were like, we're going to start small and we're going to do these little things that will that will just start to slowly change their self-image to what we want. So they would do things like getting POWs to admit little things like America's not perfect. 
And that's pretty easy. That's easy to say. I'll say that right now. America's not perfect (gasps) at all. Looks like I'm unpatriotic and un-American, but yeah, America's not perfect. That's super easy to admit. Well, now you're a communist. I guess I'm a communist. Oops. McCarthy's coming after me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, but once they admitted that, then they would build from there. They said, okay, can you make a list of things that the U.S. is not perfect in and sign your name to it? And they would be very deliberate about making the POWs create a physical record of evidence that they had gone against their old self-image because they wanted to slowly and surely build this new self-image. And they would do things like having essay contests where the person with the best essay would get a small reward, like some cigarettes or some fruit, which if you're a POW in a camp like that, fruit is probably pretty good. It's pretty scarce. Yeah. And the interesting thing is they wouldn't always award the fruit or the reward to the person who had the most pro-communist essay. Sometimes they would actually give it to somebody who wrote a really pro-US essay. So that helped to basically convince the POWs that the game wasn't rigged. Yeah. They could still yeah, participate. They didn't want it to be obvious. I can still be consistent with my pro-American values and I can still win and still get some cigarettes yeah, or something. It's still American to enter this contest. Yeah, exactly. That's okay. You know, it's fair. But for the most part, pro-communist arguments were the ones that won. So slowly but surely, they would they would subtly feel like they needed to have a little bit of pro-communist yeah, yeah. arguments in their paper to win. And now that there's this physical record, you wrote this, you signed your name to it. Isn't this what you believe? Now they want to be consistent with that. Yeah, and now they believe it more. And one of the things that is that it was worth mentioning that they, they talked about was that those rewards, while good rewards, were not so big that if they were like, we're going to send you all home if you write this paper that says, I love communism, yeah. then they would easily be able to write it and then say, well, of course I wrote it. I didn't mean it. I did it to be free. But mm-hmm. since the reward was small enough that that it didn't feel like it was overwhelming, like, well, I wouldn't completely lie for just that, would I? Yeah. Then you start to feel like that's your decision. You chose to write that. Mm-hmm. You weren't like coerced. Yeah, exactly. And once you own the decision, you have to justify it to yourself. Yep. The owning of the decision was one of the most interesting parts of the chapter for me. Yeah. I really liked the story about the uh, energy saving contest thing in Iowa they did. Oh, yeah. I don't remember if you remember this part, but um, essentially they they called up these households in Iowa and they basically wanted to get them to save energy in the winter by winterizing their homes or you know not leaving windows open or whatever it is that would lower their power bill and hence their electricity consumption. And just asking them to do it doesn't really help that much. So what they did is they said, if you guys actually take some steps to reduce your energy consumption, your name will be published in the paper as a good example. And given that possibility of a reward, the uh, energy consumption of the houses in the study went way down. But the interesting thing is what they did is they actually called later on in the study and they said, oh, we actually can't publish your name in the paper. So the whole justification for doing this was pulled out from beneath them. Yeah. The rug was just snatched out. And the interesting thing is the energy consumption still went down even further because at this point, people had made a decision based on a potential reward, but because they had made the decision, now there were more like legs to stand on, but they were self-constructed legs to stand on. So now their decision has a more solid grounding of their own making. Yeah, and they call this like the lowballing technique. Yeah, I think. But base, yeah, as as soon as you pull the rug out from under them and you say that reason's gone, well, nobody's going to be wanting to say, well, I guess I 
wasted all that time. What did I do that for? They're going to be like, well, no, it wasn't that bad. I mean, um, there are some good reasons. See, I'm still smart for doing it. And then then they start to identify as like um, uh, eco-friendly people that want to save the thing. And then it gets even better. And they they had examples of this with like car salesmen and his neighbor – Let's go through the car salesman one because that, that's a good example of a – Of them using it. Of it being used against you in a negative way. I mean yeah. I guess it is still kind of being used quote unquote against well, you. Well, saving energy is like a good thing. But that's a good thing. So you're not going to be too mad. It's pretty easy yeah. to justify that later. Yeah. It, it is somebody using it on you but for something positive. Yeah. Whereas in the case of the car salesman, it is a negative thing. So let's go through that one. I mean did you have notes about that one too? Uh, I don't. I don't know if I wrote anything about it. But uh, basically how it wor- would work is that um, say you got a couple car places and one of them has got it for – I think they used 400 It's $400 cheaper at this place, blah, 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 blah. So you go to this place and you're like, nice, it's $400 cheaper. But then you get into the process and then eventually they accidentally discover, oh, wait, it can't be. It's because I left out the air conditioning. Oops. Duh. And that's $400. Yep. What a weird – how did that happen? And then – you are going to want to justify staying there anyway because you'll be like, well, to be fair, that was the you know base price for the car. That's a fair price, mm-hmm. and I guess it's not their fault. And I was already here, and even if it's cheaper, like somehow they're still going to stick with the place that tricked them basically because – well, what's the point? You're already here. You're going to waste a bunch of time going somewhere else. And, you know, this guy's been pretty nice. I think he's doing a good job, and I might as well reward him anyway, even though I think I just got duped. But let's not let's not admit that. Yeah, exactly. I didn't get duped. He, no. just, he just forgot the thing. Yeah, he just it was forgot. An, it was and an now, accident. He's a great guy. Yeah, and there's all these reasons to buy the car, you know? Yeah. They probably gave me a nice cup of coffee when I walked into the dealership. Boom, reciprocity. And I'm already here. I don't want to go across town. In fact, you know what? What's my hourly rate anyway? If I took a bunch of extra time to go find a different dealership, I'm wasting a bunch of time, which is essentially like wasting a few hundred dollars, you know? Yeah. And this kind of goes along with how, um, you know how if you make a choice, once you buy something, you care about it more and you feel better. If I research something that I'm going to buy for like 13 hours, I'm not satisfied with any of them. Mm -hmm. But if I just go pick one out of two or three options, I just pick it. I will slowly start to justify to myself why that was the smarter of the options, and I'm very happy with it because, of course, I'm happy with it. It's got these features. They weren't important, but I already paid an extra, like, $40 for them, so now I'm going to talk them up, and I'm going to feel like that must have been the most important feature I wanted. Yeah. This teapot's a good example of that. Had I done research on teapots, I think this teapot was 75 bucks, which if I had done research, I would be like, wow, I'm not going to pay that. I can get a teapot for $25. But I wasn't researching teapots. I was in Japan, and I wanted to buy a present for Anna, and I saw this, and it looked cool, and I was in Japan. Yeah. So I justified it. Well, it's pretty easy to justify, yeah. And then, mm-hmm. and then afterwards, you're not going to be like, oh, I'm an idiot. You're just going to be like, well, I can, I can see why I did that. You know, it makes it was from Japan. Yeah. It's a special thing. Well, it's like it's just, just a little more expensive. Metal. It's it looks not really that big cool. of a deal. Yeah. It leaks on the table, but <laughs> it's not. I, I got to say, the leaking on the table, uh, <laughs> that did have me think a little bit. I don't, maybe maybe it isn't the highest quality teapot. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I did get duped. But, Who knows? But that's that's the trick. <laughs> the trick is that with the lowballing technique, especially, you can get sold on a deal because it is a smart deal, mm-hmm. and then they suddenly it's not a smart deal, and you're still going to do it anyway because you wouldn't have been duped that easy. There must yeah. have been another reason you were here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now 
there are other techniques that kind of utilize this in a less scammy way. Um, one of them being the tripwire technique, one of them being the foot in the door technique, which I actually honestly think are yeah. very similar. So I want to talk about something called the tripwire strategy. This is something that a few friends of mine have introduced me to. And when I realized what it was and how it worked, I started to see it in all sorts of businesses. So basically a tripwire strategy is something that is built to exploit the reality that it is much easier to sell to a previous customer than it is to sell to somebody who is not a customer. Yeah. So basically, repeat customers are much easier than prospects to make money off of. But if you're selling something expensive, it can be really tough to turn a prospect into a customer that first time because it's really expensive. Well, they don't really trust you yet. They haven't purchased from you yet. Exactly. So if you have something small, even if you don't make a whole lot of profit off of it, but it's a compelling offer, somebody may buy it and now they're a customer of yours. So you start to build that trust and more importantly to the topic that we're talking about now, you start to build this self-identity as, I guess they start to build the self-identity as maybe an Apple user or as um, a listener of the College of a Geek podcast or as somebody who eats at McDonald's, yeah. you know, any of these things. So the whole tripwire strategy is offer something that is a loss leader or something that makes very little profit in the early stages just to get their foot in the door. And I honestly, I honestly think that the, the book's name for this technique, the foot in the door technique, is basically the exact same thing. It's basically getting them into your system so that they think that they are, for, uh, for example, an Apple person yeah, or uh, a Pizza Hut person or something. Actually, we had a friend in college who would only eat pizza from Pizza Hut. Hmm. And I mean, I think he liked the taste of it, but also he's a Pizza Hut person. Well, once you've doubled down on that two or three times and rejected a bunch of other pizza places, well, you must be serious about your Pizza Hut love. That's true. Therefore, the identity only gets stronger. Yeah. Only Pizza Hut. Resist the call of the Domino's, even if they have the mac and cheese pizza. That's delicious. You got to resist it. I don't think you've ever had mac and cheese pizza before. No. It's a kind of off topic thought, but yeah. No, I, I don't haven't. think you've ever experienced the glory that is mac and cheese not, pizza. Not once. <laughs> it's, it's, it's glory while you're eating it, but then when you finish eating it, it's regret. Oh. Yeah, spoilers. <laughs> it's oh, one no. of those foods yeah, that, that is only good in the moment. But yeah, so that's the tripwire strategy. Now, I've seen this a lot in online marketing where you might come across a site that's selling a course. Maybe the course is $300, but instead of trying to get you to buy the whole thing up front, they won't even talk about it. They'll talk about maybe one little preview of the course or one little chunk of it that is $10. And you can get that one chunk for 10 bucks, super easy. But now you've gone through it. You maybe get some benefit from it. So there's a little bit of reciprocity thrown into the mix, but also there's this consistency, this commitment. I've committed to trying this part of the course. Now I'm a little bit more enticed to buy the entire thing because yeah. I want to complete it. You know, I wonder if games do this as well. I wonder if games will throw in, actually, you know what? A lot of mobile games do this where the initial few hours of a mobile game will give you just tons and tons of stuff. And then the faucet kind of slows a little bit, but now you're kind of hooked into the system. And I think a lot of that tendency to keep playing and in some cases buy loot boxes or microtransactions is that consistency. I keep playing this game. I've committed to this game. 
Yeah, a lot of sunk cost fallacy in there, Mm -hmm. too. There's the completionism and all that kind of stuff. Like, even with Overwatch, I felt it. When I started getting skins for my characters, like, there's, like, this little piece of my brain that wants to buy loot boxes so I can fill out all the skins for my favorite character. I want to, I've, I've like committed to filling out all of Reaper's skins or all Mercy skins. Even though the game isn't really affected by the skins at all, I still want them a little bit. Yeah. You know, so that's the tripwire strategy. Um, and now when I read about this, I realized that it's not just something that like online courses are using. It's something that a lot of businesses use. I think I read that McDonald's hamburgers really don't make a whole lot of profit, but because they have the dollar menu and you can get a hamburger for a dollar, now you're a McDonald's customer. Yeah. So now you'll come and buy fries and you'll come and buy Happy Meals and all kinds of stuff that maybe have a higher profit margin. You wouldn't have bought them earlier, but uh, now you do. And even with smaller companies, I was reading about a... um, a place in New York City. It's like this weird Chinese-American hybrid restaurant. And they sell steak and eggs for breakfast. And it's like a really good deal. It's like a steak, two eggs, giant pile of rice, a bunch of other stuff for maybe $14. Okay. And it's a fairly good cut of steak. And they were saying, like, this doesn't make any money. This whole meal is basically we sell at a loss. But people come to a diner. They expect to have steak and eggs on the menu for breakfast. So we have it. So people come, the people who want it, they eat it, they love it. They tell their friends and they come back repeatedly. And when they order something different, then we make money on that. Yeah. So the whole idea is sometimes you sell something at a loss because you get their business. You get them to be a consistent repeat customer and commit to coming back. Yeah. Essentially. So, yeah. Um, what else do we have on the outline here? Well, I would say that there's also something that you can use for yourself with consistency. And we've talked okay. about it before. But um, so there was a study talking about how public commitments help you be even more consistent than like anything else. And sure, other people are going to try to use that against you sometimes. But you can use it to get your own goals done. That's why we talk about mm. like challenges where you got the little spreadsheet and you got some other people looking at it. Yep. Or where you put Instagram 30-day exercise or whatever you're doing. And that was very effective. These work because you don't want to appear to other people as like a flake. You're reliable. You say, I said I'm going to do this, and I don't want these people to think that I'm not going to do this. Yeah. And that's a huge motivator. So they had um, they had one of the studies where they had these college students. They just had to guess how long was is this line, and then write it down. Some of them some of them wrote it down like a drawn line. I think a line of like. I don't even know if it said drawn line, line of words. Doesn't really matter for the point. I just guess just like a measurement, pretty much. Yeah, they were just like how, okay. how much, how much do you think? That, like counting jelly beans in a jar, mm. but with a line. Okay. And so the first group, they publicly committed. They wrote down their guess. They signed their name and they handed it to the person running the experiment. The second group wrote it down, but then erased it. So they committed in that they wrote it down. They kind of yeah, I know what I wrote down because writing it down makes it more physical. Yeah. Even if they erased it, they're a little committed, but nobody else knows. The third group doesn't commit at all. They keep it in their head. When given a second chance and more evidence, the people who publicly committed were the most stubborn and just refused to change their guesses. Okay. And then the people who committed privately, also stubborn, but not as much. And then the people who didn't commit at all were far more flexible and were like, oh, that's the real answer. Mm -hmm. They wanted to be right. The other people wanted to have already been right. It kind of reminds me of, uh, I can't remember if you were over when Anna said this, 
but she was we were watching something and she she says um i'm really frustrated because i think i know what's gonna happen but i'm really afraid to say it because if it doesn't happen then i look dumb oh then you'll feel bad and i was like well yeah but if if you want to feel smug at being able to predict something you need to commit to it yeah <laughs> <laughs> otherwise i'm not gonna believe you yeah <laughs> But yeah, that's it's really interesting. So basically, once you've committed to it, again, the evidence comes in and you're like, nope, no, that's probably wrong. Yeah. And so since the public commitment of those was the strongest, even for something as just arbitrary as I don't want to have guessed the wrong number. Oh, no. Then using those public commitments for your own goals and your own things is a way to use consistency on yourself. Mm -hmm. So what I'm really curious about is. I did that video a while ago on why you shouldn't tell people your goals. And they had that study about when people had verbally stated their goals, um, it created what they called a social reality where you gained a little bit of satisfaction that you would have gotten from achieving the goal just by saying it, getting the congratulations of your friends or the admiration that you're giving it a shot. And it makes it less likely that you'll actually follow through. But yeah, on the flip side, stuff on that. Right. On the flip side, it is definitely effective in certain cases to publicly state your goal. So what I said in the video, and maybe we can flesh this out, maybe I'm wrong, but what I said in the video is like, I think number one, you need to have somebody who will actually hold you accountable to what you say you're going to do. But I think more importantly, if you're going to publicly commit to something, it needs to be a statement of a practice that you're going to consistently do, not an outcome that you're going to achieve. So I'm going to become a champion figure skater is much different than I'm going to be at the rink practicing for an hour a day. Well, one of them is is less like, I feel so glorious to tell everybody how perfect I'm going to be. Yeah. And that, that gives you the good feeling because if they believe you, you're like, you think I'm awesome as stuff. Now I kind of identify already as already, I have the potential to be awesome. That's yeah. all you need to know is that I'm the kind of person who does good stuff. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned a spread a spreadsheet thing, and I'm guessing a lot of people don't know what you're talking about. So I do want to go into that oh, yeah. a little bit. So the way that I uh, publicly commit to things, I guess number one, I did a while ago a uh, Instagram challenge where for 30 days I exercised intensely and took a picture of what I did and put it on Instagram, which is a pretty effective thing. Yeah. I exercised like you did. every single day. You did it. Um, another way that I've done this, and this is the way I'm doing it right now, is I've set up a spreadsheet on Google Sheets, and then I basically just track the goal that I'm trying to do every day on the spreadsheet. So I've got column A is the date for however long the challenge is going to run. And then column B is yes or no. Yeah. And what I told him is here's the link to my spreadsheet. And if it says no, even one day, I will give you a hundred bucks. Now I do want to point out certain friends of mine would try to sabotage me because they just want the hundred bucks. Uh, And I know you're not that kind of a person. So I feel comfortable having you be the person holding me accountable. Though I do remember you saying that Anna should do it and the punishment, if she fails, yeah, oh yeah. will be that I have to have a mustache for a week. I would, And I feel like you would be incentivized uh, to sabotage her. I would. <laughs> because you think that would be funny. Yes, that's an example of I shouldn't be in charge of her challenge because I would try to sabotage her. I'd just be like, oh, it looks like she didn't remember. Let's just, you want to watch a movie? Let's watch Lord of the Rings. Yeah, also that is a punishment that affects me. Yeah, so but I don't like that one. I still find it funny. So I, I, I don't care. <laughs> I don't want to have a mustache again. It looks bad. I've been there. You could be axe cop. 
<laughs> but yeah, so I do that because I think that that is a stronger way to publicly commit than just saying, hey, Martin, I'm going to read for 20 minutes a day for the next month or I'm not going to drink for a month. Yeah, you're it's raising like, the stakes no, here a bit. is an actual record of whether or not I did it and you can look at it and verify it. And there is a punishment there. Well, not only that, with the punishment there, what you're saying is I really believe I'm going to do this. Yes. I'm extra sure. So now I look extra like flaky or extra unreliable if mm-hmm. I don't get to it. I was so serious about this. Yeah. But th- I think that's <clears throat> the difference about the goal thing is that when you when you focus on committing to the action, the act of writing, the act of practicing a guitar, not writing 10 songs, mm-hmm. but practicing a guitar, then this can work because it's actually something you can do. But when you talk too much about the outcome, you just end up fantasizing about how great of a rock star you're going to be. Yeah. And that's when you get all of the like good feelings of success because you're you're daydreaming it. Mm-hmm. And that that's the problem. It's hard to daydream. Oh, I just look at me practicing those same few chords for like four hours. Oh, what a good daydream. I'm a genius. Yeah, exactly. It's just the work. You focus on the work and not the glory. That actually brings an example to mind. A uh, friend of ours wanted to learn how to make video games. And what he told us is, I'm going to make this amazing video game. And he had all these ideas for it. What he didn't tell us was, I'm going to work through, say, a game development course for an hour a day. Yeah. Or I'm going to build a small game every week for six weeks or something like that. There was no commitment to the craft. There was only a statement of this grand lofty ideal. And I haven't seen any progress towards that grand lofty ideal yet. Well, you can't just like you don't just become a rock star. Mm-hmm. You practice a lot of stuff and write a lot of music. It's all small steps. You don't just build a house. You continuously lay bricks or connect pieces. And then suddenly, hey, look, it's a house. Mm-hmm. That's weird. So when we delude ourselves into thinking, well, I'll just start next week because I'm going to do such a good job and I'm going to work 14 hours a day on this. Yeah. You, no, you're not. You're almost certainly not. Not going to do it. Nope. And yeah, a lot of people think that, oh, if I could only quit my job and work from home, I would just put every hour into this. But a lot of times those same people are not coming home from work and putting in the two hours they have left into that thing. Yeah. So they just feel like there would be this infinite amount of energy and focus as long if, – if only they could just get rid of their other commitments. Well, the problem with that – and this is slightly off topic, but on that, that's a very dangerous way to think because then – you're going to be like, well, I can't quit my job, though, because I got to pay the bills. Yeah. So I guess I can't start until I can magically quit my job and bills are gone. So one, you're either going to forever never even start to goal or two, you're going to quit your job erroneously. And you better hope that whatever you were saying was really serious because yep. you may just have like messed everything up for yourself. And I find that often when you quit your job, all that time you gain is actually your enemy because the pressure has gone. Oh, yeah. You took the the summer off that one time to just do a bunch of work even, and then you worked less. Yeah. Well, it wasn't just the summer. So my junior year, first semester, I had two jobs. I was an RA and I worked at the business college and I also had all my classes and clubs I was in and there was very little time to do CIG work, but I still wrote some articles. But I was thinking like, okay, now this site's starting to get some traction. Man, wouldn't it be great if I had all the time in the world to work on it? So yeah. the second semester of that year... I quit being an RA, I quit the business college job, and I just told myself, all right, I've, I've had part-time jobs all throughout college up to this point, but now I'm going to have classes and I'm going to have College Info Geek. And I did less. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I wrote fewer articles that semester. And then during the summer, I didn't have a job and I really didn't do much. Well, you had you all know? that time. You could have done it at any moment. That's, exactly. And that's what meant you didn't need to now. Mm-hmm. And I had a freelance project as well that summer. And it took me so long to do it because there was no deadline. It was just all this time. Yeah. And when you have all this time, it's so easy to use the next hour to scroll through Reddit or something because you have all the hours after that to do the thing. Yeah. Whereas, you know, when you're leaving on a road trip tomorrow. Oh, I have a ton of stuff to do today. We're going to get all these things done. But it has all to, the time it pressure. has to happen. Because it has to happen. Exactly. And, and all this to say, like, uh, public commitment is a good way <laughs> to do good, but. There are just, there are ways you can do it wrong. And then this, then this principle will not help you Mm -hmm. if you do it the wrong way. And in the show notes, we can actually link to, um, my previous spreadsheet challenge. So this one's in, in progress now, but I did one earlier this year to read 25 pages a day. And it was the same structure. I gave you the link to the spreadsheet and it was a hundred bucks if I failed and I didn't fail. And I think that was for three months actually. Yeah. So I ended up reading like 11 or 12 books some of them very difficult books and there were nights where i would be in the basement holed up in the most quiet corner of the house that i could find reading my 25 pages like at 11 20 p.m yeah because i didn't want to fail yeah like it can it can work really well Mm -hmm. and um i guess on the other side of this if you think you're maybe being duped by yourself or somebody else if somebody's getting you one of the best ways to think about this and, and frame it is just knowing what I know now, would I do this again? Would yeah. I join this club? Would I take this job? Would I go to this church? Would I eat this pizza? Would I wear these clothes mm-hmm. again, knowing everything I know now? Maybe the answer is yes. That's perfectly fine. But if yeah. the answer is no, you may be falling victim to consistency. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm, I'm a consistent Apple product buyer. Yeah. Would I buy the same things again? I don't know. I don't think I would buy an Apple watch again. Well, see, there you go. Lines, you know, because when I got it, I think there was a lot of consistency and commitment. I have an iPhone. I have a MacBook Pro. I'm not totally Apple consistent because I have a desktop over there. But why shouldn't I have the Apple Watch? And certainly there are other benefits in my mind to it. But there was this idea of kind of completing the set, you know, yeah. being consistent. Like, why wouldn't I add this new thing they came out with to my system? I'm sure it will make me even more productive. Yeah, and you can find infinite justifications for all these things. Mm-hmm. And that and that's why, like, the really the best way to look at it is just, what if I were starting completely over? Yeah. Would I do it again right, in it, right this second? I know all the truths. Would I still do it? Yeah, exactly. So before we close this episode out, uh, we kind of skipped around because I was going to put the how to defend against this stuff to the end. We already talked about it. There was one example that I did not want to uh, gloss over, so I want to put it in here. Okay. And it was the, the very simple tactic of getting people to simply answer a question that makes them take a stance. So there was an experiment done in Dallas for the Hunger Relief Committee where they called people up and they asked them, would you let us have somebody come to your house and sell you cookies? For this cause. Oh. So their standard approach was to call up and just ask, would you let somebody come sell us cookies or sell you cookies? And 18% of people said yes. So not a huge amount. Then they changed it up a little bit and they would call people up and instead of immediately asking, well, can somebody come to your house and sell you cookies? They asked, how are you doing? And by asking that question, 
people's natural response is usually going to be like, oh, I'm doing fine or I'm doing great. Yeah. So now they have taken a public stance without even really thinking about it that they're doing well, to which they can immediately build a contrast. I'm glad to hear that you're doing great. But uh, it turns out that a lot of people in the city are not doing great. There's a lot of kids going hungry, all that yeah. kind of a stuff. So now they have they've created this contrast. And because you're the one who took the stance, you're not going to back down from that. You're not going to be like, oh, well, actually, you know, I'm in a lot of credit card debt and I'm actually not doing that great. No, I told him I was fine. Dang it. No, well, I told him I was fine. They so do I'm this fine. in the gardens. They're just like, hey, you look like a really nice person who cares a lot about children and or refugees and or something. And you're like, they think I'm a nice person. <laughs> well, yeah, duh, I care. Oh, well, then would you like to donate all these things? I meant to say I I only care enough to tweet about it. Yeah. Uh, I don't care that much. Can I go now? It's not going to work like that. You're mm-hmm. going to be awkwarded into doing it. Yeah, exactly. And I, I almost wonder if asking people to to say the answer themselves is more effective. So if somebody says, you look like a upstanding young citizen, that might be somewhat effective yeah. because you're buttering them up a little bit. But by asking, how are you doing? And they say, I'm doing great. Now they have made that stance yeah. themselves. Well, you, you trick people into thinking it was their idea. Yeah, it's That's their idea. how all the best things work. Mm-hmm. It's inception. So they create that contrast and then they ask the same thing. Can someone come to your house and sell you cookies? Now, the interesting thing, 108 out of 120 people they polled had positive replies. So I guess there were... 10% that were just like, I'm actually having a really crappy day, you know, <laughs> but 108 Fair. people had a positive reply. And of those 32% agreed to have somebody come sell them cookies. Yeah. So that's a 14% increase, almost double. And out of the people who actually were pitched cookies by somebody, 89% actually did buy. So just this little tweak asking, how are you doing? Getting that public commitment and then building the contrast was effective. It almost doubled it. And of mm-hmm. course not everybody bought them, but yeah. Almost doubled is a huge deal for just slightly tweaking your little script you have to read from. Yeah, exactly. So I would say, you know, in the case of buying cookies to support hungry people, that's probably fine. It's not like a bad thing. It's just like usually you want to own your own decisions. You want to know you did it because you did it. Yeah. You want. So, yeah, I want to I want to point this out because it can help you identify when people are using that against you, maybe for another reason that isn't so altruistic. Yeah. You know? And I mean, this is another altruistic reason, and I'm coming back to the Whole Foods checkout line example from our last time, but I almost feel like them asking you to donate at the checkout line of Whole Foods is sort of a similar situation. Because me shopping at Whole Foods is almost a statement in itself. Like, I'm well off enough to buy this weird hipstery drink. I do like weird hipstery drinks. Do you want to donate to this hunger relief fund? Oh, well, actually, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Turns out I can't afford the hipster drinks. I want people to think I'm nice. (laughs) I don't want to betray that assumption they may have about me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, and I still think that the rounding up thing is much more effective than asking for a donation that is in addition to the purchase. Oh, yeah. The rounding up feels like nothing's happening. I think it's because it feels like nothing. Yeah. Because our brains think in terms of dollars. So it's just like it, it's just up to the next dollar. That's nothing. Yeah. But I think there is a part of that commitment to your public self-image that is built into that. You're sort of making a statement about your level of wealth by shopping at a certain place. And when you're asked, do you want to donate? That comes into the equation. Well, yeah. If you got like an $8 drink for whatever reason and they're like, would you like to round up? You're going to be like – I did just spend eight dollars on a drink of all things, <laughs> yeah. but uh, actually, 
I'm too poor to buy anything but absurdly overpriced drinks today. I can't out, yeah. I can't help people. I'm just really thirsty. I'm really poor, but somebody said that they would um they would kill me actually if I didn't buy this eight dollar drink. That's what it is. Yeah. I could have just gone to the water over there, but yeah. it's, not, it's not my, my life's fault. on the line, actually. Sorry. Spent my, spent my last eight dollars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I just I just wanted to point out that something as simple as how are you doing can be used against you. So always answer with horribly depressed. Yes. Yeah. That is that is the lesson here. Yep. I'm so depressed. Please help. Watch out though because you might be forced through consistency to depress yourself. <laughs> Ooh, that might be a back might backfire. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about that as well. I wouldn't tell everybody I was depressed if I wasn't depressed, right? Well, so I mean, I don't know how much that affects how you behave because of how you think people perceive you. But as you mentioned earlier, the self-image that you commit to affects how you make decisions because of how you look at yourself. And I was thinking about that before we recorded because I've had this self-image of somebody who takes risks, of somebody who is willing to really push myself. And I think that my self-image actually uh, contributes to me doing more of that. Yeah. And I think if somebody had a self-image of somebody who, you know, gets hurt more often or they think that they're just not the person who takes risks, they're going to act consistently with that image of themselves. I see you low-key trying to get me to go skiing, Tom. <laughs> Wasn't that transparent? I don't want to. I'm, I'm snowboarding. <laughs> it's different. Actually, I really want to learn how to snowboard as well, you know, but I, I, I don't want to actually push you to go skiing, but I do want to just point that out. I think people's self-image actually influences their future decisions quite a bit. Yeah. If you see yourself as weak and afraid, you will act as if you're weak and afraid, and then you will see yourself as weak and afraid, and then you'll keep going forever. Mm-hmm. And it's not just weak and afraid or willing to take no, it risks. Could, it could be it might be, I see myself as a socially outgoing person, so I feel that it is easier to go introduce myself to somebody. Yeah. Or I see myself as uh, a shy person. Lots of self-fulfilling prophecies. You know? So yeah, there's a big... There's a big uh, component here to how you make your own decisions based on how you see yourself that should be considered. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's all that we are going to talk about once again. It's basically just an inception. You need to inception yourself. Yes. Inception yourself. You're going to have to go through a gigantic snowmobile chase and the hotel hallways are going to be rotating. Yeah. And you're going to have to fall backwards in the water. that's the only way to get your goals done, Tom. That is the only way to get your goals done. Yep, Inception. <laughs> anyway, guys, show notes for this episode are over at CIGpodcast.com slash 189. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, you can click that link in the description down below to check those out. We will have links to this book, since we are heavily analyzing it throughout this series. We'll have links to um, the previous episode in this series as well. So if you, can, if you missed it, you can go check it out. That one was on Reciprocity. And then anything else that we happen to talk about, we will link to as well. So check those resources out if you want to dig deeper. And if you want to support this show, one great way to do so is to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We also have a link over in the show notes for how to do that if you don't know how to do it. But if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, it's pretty easy to just review the show straight from the app. So once again, thanks for listening as always. And we will see you in next week's episode. Stay cute.